really, if you're worried about in um, estate taxes, if you're worried about rules, um, you you really should have some kind of estate strategy, which I have, you know, trust plans and and foundations. So I am never going to pay estate taxes, or my my family or wherever my money is never going to pay estate taxes because it's we have proper planning set up. Um, a life insurance comes in income tax free, so across the board, no states would be affected by that. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Hey everybody, it is August 21st, 2020. I am live in the Better Wealth studio alone. Uh, and this is gonna be actually a very fun episode because I am gonna be answering a lot of key questions that have been coming through. Thank you in advance for all those of you that have participated and helped us get some questions. Um, this has been one of the things that we want to continue to do and we know that it's just important to have live sessions and also if you're somebody that wants to come live on the, on the show with me ask questions to talk um i would love to hear from you so please let us know you can email me at caleb at betterwealth.com that's caleb at betterwealth.com and uh, we actually what was really cool is someone in the salon world i don't even know what the the salon podcast is but one of you guys um, recommended me to be on the show, and so I'm going to be talking to a bunch of salon owners later this year, and apparently it's a really big show, and so that's just, it kind of cracked me up, and so in honor of the show, I got my hair cut um, from, from those of you that know how to cut hair. I'm really grateful that things are starting to open back up, so one of the things that I want to do today is, number one, Friday is a content day for me, meaning I am thinking about all the future episodes for my myself personally, what kind of videos that we're doing on YouTube. So I'm going to share with you a little sneak peek of what's to come. And then I'm also going to answer some questions. Um, and it's just been a lot of craziness going on. I don't know. Um, you know, it, it would also be cool to just hear some updates from the community. And I don't have that for you today but we have been hearing some really cool things from from you guys and so thank you for all the, those that you are a part of the better wealth family really really appreciate that and i know we've also gotten a lot of people that are bummed that we're not able to meet in person um i being one of them and uh, I, I i cannot wait till we can come um, back and meet in person so um the first thing that i want you to know is some of the topics that i am making videos on that will drop in future podcasts. Um, one of them is around how I purchased the Tesla. Now, for some of you guys, that's news to you because I don't talk a lot about me owning a Tesla. I'm I really I grew up on this on this idea of like you should never buy a car new. And so I think there's a there's a 10, maybe 10 day time period that I thought like my parents would would be very upset about me if they found out that I was getting a Tesla. They they still love me. Um, and and it really comes down to anytime you purchase something, I call it a, de a depreciating asset. You, you There's really two decisions you need to make. Number one, should you buy that to begin with? And then number two, how should you purchase that? So the video that I did this morning was breaking down like number one, how I made that decision, why I made that decision. It was very much a, a team uh, focused decision. There were some tax benefits. There were some business benefits, but there were a lot of things that went into that decision alone. 
The second thing is I have this belief that you're going to buy a depreciating asset. What does What is a depreciating asset? It's an asset that goes down in value. It's typical that if you have a home, if you have uh, an investment, that's things. it's going to grow over time. It's going to grow in value. Um, when you have something like a car, um, even though Teslas hold their value quite well, it's less valuable today than over two years ago when I got the car. And so that's just an example of like it depreciates. Um, I wouldn't want to leverage money or spend money that I did not have. I think that's one of the problems and one of the reasons why um, we have a, a savings crisis on our hands, why we're not that wealthy as a country. And I don't mean that as like a country as a whole. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that more individually is we're buying things that we literally can't afford. That I actually did give Dave Ramsey some credit here because um, his whole idea of buy things with cash Although I think that's an inefficient way to purchase something, you can't buy things you can't afford because if, if you can't buy something if you don't have the cash. So when he says buy a house with cash, you're going to buy a, a smaller house because you're, you're, most people don't have half a million to a million dollars sitting in a savings account. Same thing goes with your car. So with that, with that said, um, I explained that philosophy. And, and since I did have the money to buy that car, I walked through three different ways to buy a car. Pay cash. You don't pay any interest, but you lose out on that, what that interest could have earned you over your lifetime. And we actually looked at it. And, and at one point, with one calculation, it was over almost a half a million bucks. So that's a big deal. Um, the second deal is actually using the end asset, using the overfunded life insurance. This is something that was um, something that I personally used. And and it was it was one of those things where you know it's really powerful when you have an, a life insurance policy and you borrow against it. And you can do other things with it. This is what I do a lot. I didn't actually do it for the car analogy, but I, I've done this a lot. It's it's one of the big pieces of um, advice that I give people through the book is like, this is a really powerful way to use your life insurance. The third way is actually using your and asset and a bank. It's essentially maintaining control over your money, but using cheaper money. And I walk through the math on that. At the end of the day, I want people to be more in control, to be more secure, to have more um, access to their money and to use it for opportunities. And I just believe the third way, having the and asset and using a potential credit union or a bank or other pre people's money could actually give you more money in the long run, give you more control. And, um, and so it comes down to the cost of capital. It comes down to the control value. And um, so that was, that was one thing that I talked about. Obviously, the video is like 30 minutes because I go on my computer and map all that out. And um, I'm sure I'm sure it could be better, but I, I I've been asked many times, Caleb, how do you go about buying things? And a lot of times we we forget that there's a how and a what decision, and we want to combine them together, but we really need to separate them. Um, the other the other example uh, that I'll that I'll share is uh, we had someone at our house that is an Ironman runner and or an athlete, I should say that, and I believe Ironman is, is swimming over two miles. I'm saying over because I know it is. I just don't know the exact uh, metric. It's it's then biking over 100 miles. Um, I, I want to say 110, but don't quote me on that. And then it's running a full marathon. Like that's unbelievable. Um, and so I'm really excited that we're going to be collaborating with this individual. He's he's over. We go for a, a mere two two mile or 2.3 mile run. And it's a good thing I know where my house is because I would have never made it. Uh, number one, running in Colorado is hard enough. And, and um, two, two miles is not like, you know, it's not just an easy run. But the point that I made in one of the episodes that you'll hear is because I knew where we were going, I, I, I you know, pushed through even though I had a cramp 
even though there, it was like tough because I knew where, like where, where we were headed. And unfortunately, a lot of times, if you don't have that, it's hard to get motivated. It's hard to know like where you want to go. And I don't blame you why, like if you're trying to be disciplined, but you don't have the end end in mind, it can be extremely difficult. So talked about that, talked about life insurance being the key. A uh, shout out to a good friend of mine, Rich Keller, who helped me understand my one word and better wealth's one word is very much the key. We are, we are the company. Um, I want to be an individual that helps you unlock things that um, you don't even know is possible. And I want to be literally a key um, to you showing up powerfully in your life. And so all in all, like it's just, it, it was just a good example. So I took that key analogy and then ap applied it to the end asset, applied it to overfunded life insurance and just talked about how it, it can be a key to do multiple things. I think we need to think about our money. The moral of this is we need to think of, of our money more as a tool, more as an, an a, as a foundational, um, you know, as, if you think about a key, the key unlocks certain things. It gives you the ability to do certain things, but it's not necessarily the solution itself. It's how you use it. Same thing goes with, with life insurance in many cases. It is the key, but it's very much how you use it and how it's designed. Um, and then we talked a lot about transformation versus transaction. This is another episode that I did. It's just been heavy on my heart that we need to be in the business of transforming people's lives in what we do and how we how we help them and how we come alongside people that are in our better wealth family. And if we if we don't have that, it, then we're merely just like everybody else having a transaction. And our world is filled with transactions, which is totally fine. Like there's nothing wrong with the transaction. But but in this episode, I talk about some books that I've read and just going deeper and how we can be more transformational. The other key um, update I want to give you is I thought today was all going to be about the Raptor aircraft taking flight. And if you don't know what I mean, you can go to you can go into Google and type in RaptorAircraft.com. I'm also going to go onto YouTube. I believe the Raptor. Um, if you go to the YouTube channel Raptor Aircraft type that in, you'll be able to get their vlog. It has, they have 21,000 plus subscribers. Essentially the Raptor aircraft is, I call it the Tesla of the sky. Um, and it's, it's a guy named Peter who, um, essentially wants to change the way that we fly. And he's like, flying is way too expensive and it can be done way more efficiently and way more effectively. And so he's out, he's making a an aircraft that's a five seater runs on diesel. Um, go check it out. Cause I'm not gonna, I'm not the expert. I'm going I was going to have Dan here talking about all the details. Um, but essentially a couple of years ago, I had a good friend of mine who is actually part owners, has some equity in this company and was like, Caleb, check this out. You, you will thank me later. And so we like, I go check this thing out and, and I end up putting a down payment on and it, it, they say when it's ready to fly, one could purchase it for, 130,000. I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if it's, it's just some marketing scheme, but it, it seems like a very revolutionary way to fly. And so I, I'm actually on that list. I think I'm somewhere like 900 on the list. Uh, it comes with a parachute, which was kind of a selling, <laughs> it got me over the edge, but it also, it's just, I have a dream someday to, to be able to fly, whether it's me personally, or just having a mechanism to be able to have time freedom to go somewhere. And so um, this is something that, you know, as when that, when that launches, one of the things that I had an idea of like maybe getting momentum for our YouTube channel is when they take air, when it takes flight to release a YouTube video on number one, everyone's going to be like, a lot of people are going to be knowing that this exists. Number, 
and so I want to use that momentum to share with people how I'm going to buy Raptor aircraft doing the same mechanism that I use with the Tesla. Like I'm not just going to pay cash because of the and asset and because it's the key, it's going to give me the ability to unlock other abilities so that I could potentially fly, but have my money continue to work for me and to build business because quite frankly, the business and what we're building is going to be able to justify giving me the ability to fly. So if you're a pilot, um, if you're into flying, I would love to hear from you. Um, get your thoughts. I would love to get your thoughts on the Raptor aircraft. I've had some people that say it's way too good to be true. It's not going to happen. And I have other people that um, have been following this longer than I have. I have not been following it diligently, but since it's ready to take flight, I have been tuning in every day to see if they they have it. And so if you go to raptor-aircraft.com, you'll be able to read more about it. And then obviously the YouTube channel is is the is the vlog. And I'm, again, a very big fan of documenting the journey. I also just want to say this. If you are a videographer or if you know a videographer, I know I've said this once before with Jason, we are looking for talented video people that are, are good at editing, that are good at using video because we want to start documenting the journey. Just like the Raptor aircraft documented from like just the idea. Like you can go back, let me see here, you can go back to the the videos and i'm just going to sort to when their first first video was done over 6 years ago over 6 years of documenting the journey that's extremely powerful i i wish i had the i did that i sh- i should i was going to say i had the ability that's not even true i did i had a phone um i wish i would have done a better job documenting as we're continuing to grow as a as a company um and just as a movement i'm seeing the greater need to document and just just document just for the fact of like, this is what we did this week. And whether people want to watch it or not, I do believe that um, one would look back and and find that incredibly fascinating. And so that is just one of the things that I'm excited for. And uh, when that comes out, you should, you'll be seeing an extra YouTube video on how I purchased that. Um, and so again, we'd love to hear from you if you're into flying or if you are into video, because we want to do the same thing. Um, so let me see if there's anything else that I'm, I'm also, I have not made this video yet, but I'm going to be talking about the 0% interest and why that, that can be a lie. Um, I, more and more, I, I hear people that say, oh, I got a 0% interest on, on this car and it could be a 0% interest. It very much could be, especially with these low interest rates because of the low demand. But in most cases, I, there's a simple calculation. You have to look at the payment. So yes, you could have a 0% interest rate on a $25,000 car, but if you had cash, that car would be 21,000. So there's actually if if you could buy that with cash at 21,000, but you're paying 0% interest on 25,000, it's a it's a funny math. You really need to to really figure out the true interest rate. You have to figure out what the cheapest um way that you could buy that car. That's why again, I'm such a huge fan of having control over your capital. It unlocks a lot of different abilities. This happens with with Best Buy or when you use technology. A lot of times if you have cash, you can have a better cash buy than if you financed it. Even though they're saying it's 0%, if you actually add up the payments and add those up versus if you had cash, it's just funny math. And so that's another thing that I'm going to be talking about. Um, but um, I'm going to go back to some of the questions. I'm going to see if we have any questions live here. Does not look like it. Um, so I'm going to a- answer some of the questions that we've gotten 
um, from all of you guys. And this is going to be, again, a common theme. Keep them coming. And they just, a lot of them happen to be about life insurance. I, I'm I'm telling you, no questions off limits. I mean, if it's a bad, bad, inappropriate question, we're not going to air it. But like, feel free to send any kind of questions our way and and it will get answered. If you're okay, we will use your name. Um, and we're just like, we're just really grateful for, for that. Also, I want to say I have 149 Apple reviews on my podcast. So the 150, 50th Apple review that we get is going to be a big deal. So just if you, if you're listening to this on an iPhone and have not reviewed my show, you'd, you'd make me extremely happy for doing so. So let me ask a couple questions that we have highlighted for today. Um, question number one is the difference between good debt and bad debt. This is a great question. I actually um, shot a debt course for our community um, this week. And the difference between good debt and bad debt, you could answer this a couple ways. And I'm going to answer this in a few different ways. The first way is, um, is this debt as an instrument, is this helping me be more in control and have more money over time or less money and less control? So let me, let me explain that. Um, bad debt would say, because of this instrument, I am being inefficient with my cash flow. It's costing me a lot of, of you know, the interest rates high and it's putting me less behind. So remember, there's a difference between how you buy something and what you buy. So let's just say you, you buy a house, okay? Bad debt would be an instrument that actually gave you less control and had you pay more interest and made you less, less wealthy over 30 years. Good debt would be an instrument that allowed you to have more control, have more money, and give you more opportunities. Um, another way to look at good debt versus bad debt is some people call this the cash flow index. We call this the cash flow scorecard. It's actually a calculation that you can do um, and it can show you like what the difference between good debt and bad debt. And it's all based on how much money or how much cash flow is getting eaten up by a certain loan. So this is how it goes. You take your your balance and you say, like, let's say your balance is a thousand dollars, okay? And then you divide it by your minimum payment. And so let's say your minimum payment is is $100. You take that calculation, and if the number's less than 50, it's a, it's a bad debt. It's like it's eating up so much cash flow. It's not being efficient. You should either pay it off or refinance it, but you should get rid of it. It's not being efficient with your cash. If it's somewhere between 50 to 100, then you you have options. You can say, May, this is not the most efficient debt. Maybe we we create some kind of snowball method where we like take our free cash flow or assets and knock that off, or or maybe we, you know, you you kind of have options. And then if it's over a hundred, um, this may be an efficient debt. This may be an efficient loan for you, and you might want to consider just keeping it, paying the minimum payments, and then putting the money in something up, something like an and asset, or invest in yourself, or something like like that. And so again, take take the balance, divide it by the minimum payment. It's going to spit out a number. The higher the number, the better. The lower the number, the worst efficiency that you have as it relates to the cash and cash flow. And that's that's an effective way to tell if you have good debt and bad debt. But essentially, good debt puts money back in your pocket. Bad debt takes money away. That's probably what I should have said when I uh, first started this. Um, okay, second question. Should I liquidate my retirement account to pay off credit card, uh, credit card debt? That's a great question. I, I want you to know that every situation trumps the rule. And so I'm not giving any investment advice. So don't sue me. And I, I want to just talk like just common sense. 
if your investment account is earning you 8%, and let's just say this 8% is not guaranteed, this 8% is an average, and so we know that it could be higher, but it also could be lower. And let's say this investment account does not give you a ton of other results other than the hope that it's going to grow someday for the future. And let's say you have 21% credit card debt that is just eating away at you and, and eating up a lot of your cash flow. I think it would be very common sense to say, would you, would you sell off 8% asset to pay off a liability, a debt that's draining you at 21%? I would, I, if I was in that situation, would do that. Um, and just because it's just math. If you can, if if I would much rather take cash. I, and another way to answer this question is, if you had money um, and you could invest it at eight percent or pay off twenty one percent, where would you put it? Um, I would pay off the twenty one percent. Now, the reason I like credit cards is they're revolving, so it's like you're. I think it can be a risk to pay off your debt so aggressively that you're not having an emergency fund. But if you're paying off a revolving credit card or or a HELOC or whatever, you still have control and access to some of that money. And so it's like versus like paying off student loans or a mortgage. It's not like the and it's not like the bank is obligated to give you that money back. So some some things to think about. But as it relates to credit card debt, I do think there's there's some wisdom on selling off assets, maybe refinancing um, and and paying off that credit card debt. So I think that is a that's actually a strategy that we look at when people come into a program is like, we, how can we be most efficient in this scenario? And often a lot of people have their foot on the gas and brake. And what we do is if we can just help you get your foot off the, off the brake, good things can happen. Next question, should I use IBC to pay off debt? Some people call, people call this IBC for infinite banking. Some people call this cash flow banking. Some people call this the and asset. Some people wrote a book on the and asset, which is um, something that you know, I, I did and it very much have changed our business and um, made a lot of questions like this. Here's, here's the deal. Um, any, anything, ha every time you use cash, there's a cost to it. So when you use a policy loan, there's going to be cost. Let's just say for this example, it's 5%. There's insurance companies. I personally work with an insurance company that's less than that for myself personally. We have, we have, P we have insurance companies that offer all kinds. Let's just say 5% is the number. And would it make sense to borrow at 5% to pay off 3% loan? And again, the situation always trumps the rule because I don't know I don't know where you're at in life, but it does not make sense to pay 5 to earn 3. Or should I say pay 5 to save 3? But if you paid 5 to pay off, you know, 7% debt, now that's a 40% rate of return. How do I get that number? I'm paying five, saving seven. I'm paying five, I'm earning $2. Would, would I pay 5% to knock off 21% credit card? Yes, I would, because it's costing me $5 to control that money if, for every hundred, and I'm, I'm saving uh, a lot more than $5. Um, and so, so I believe you're saving 16% on that. And, and that, that number, if you actually look at the the true rate of return, it's a lot, lot higher. Um, so I think a better question to ask though, is if you're in heavy credit card debt, do I recommend you starting an and asset? And the answer is no. I, I mean, I've been very, very clear. If you have bad debt, and I, I think there's some wisdom in getting term insurance, getting convertible term insurance, 
So you can do an and asset, taking that rest of that money, knocking that debt off, and then redirecting the, the money that's freed up back to you. Mathematically, that just makes more sense. Because the policy takes a couple of years to get to break even, and if you're struggling with credit card debt or bad debt, every dollar counts. Now, again, there's there's exceptions to the rule. And there's a lot of times that we'll start a program, delay people's ability to pay off even bad debt because they know it's, it's a personal decision. They want, I want to get the ball rolling. I know I'll never start. I want to get momentum. But mathematically, it doesn't make sense. So yes, is um, should I use IBC or the and asset payoff debt? Sure, it could be very effective, especially if you know if you're already in that position. Should you start this strategy if you have bad debt? I would talk to someone that knows the situation, but in most cases, I would knock off the bad debt, then use the free cash flow to start the end asset, um, and and then once you have that established, then obviously it can be. It, I, I recommend people use money in the best way, the the best way that will help them for the future, which could be paying off debt, which could be buying assets. Next question. What should I do if I'm planning to retire in, in less than five years? Great question. You should you should talk to somebody about um, distribution strategies. Distribution is a fancy word for retirement strategies, income strategies. Like at, at this point, if you're five years in, you should not care about rate of return anymore. You should not care. You should look at your assets and say, where should my money be best positioned to, to help me better get a cash flow in in the future cuz the reason i'm answering it this way is is you're we're using the word retire so it's it may and every remember every situation is different maybe you have a ton of real estate maybe you have what whatever so i would just like i would ask the question how would my assets today translate into better showing up for cash flow how would my assets today best show up for cash flow so if you have if you have a nest egg a 401k an ira i would recommend you go to um vanguard let me type this in vanguard stock here nest egg calculator okay so if you go to retirement nest egg calculator by vanguard type that in and it's just right it's it's uh vanguard.com slash nest egg calculator you can you can literally see the safe withdrawal rate and you can type in what you have and then you can say so if i have 50% stocks, 30% bonds, let's say, let's say 40% bonds, 10% cash. You can you can change it all. Let's say I have a, a million bucks and you know, I want to spend $45,000 a year for the next 30 years. I have a 16% chance of having no money, like running out of money. You know, that that's not necessarily super cool. And so if you bring that down to, you know, 3%, which means if you have a million dollars, you can take $30,000 a year. If you run that, if you run that, you have a 2% chance of running out of money, which is a whole lot better than a 16% chance. But you just, you just got to like, this is an example. If you just solely have a stock portfolio, what you'd have to have the conversation of. And what I would recommend is I would ask the question, don't worry about the money. Any, don't worry about the net number. Worry about the cash flow. And there are strategies. There are strategies using the end asset. There's strategies using fixed index annuities. There's strategies using um, the market and other, you know, volatility buffers or pension optimization that will literally give you more control, more money, and have give you more peace of mind. And so, if you're someone nearing retirement, the first, and you're going to retire in the next five, ten years, and you want to talk to somebody about 
how to get your money best positioned for cash flow or secure stream or whatever that looks like, um, you can reach out to us. You can go to betterwealth.com and have a conversation with someone on my team. Um, it's very, very good question. I think a lot of people are focused on solely rate of return, solely accumulation, but they know that a million dollars, you should know that a million dollars is not created equal. It's all about what that, what the spendable cash on that million dollars is. And that's another good thing is there's a lot of real estate people that think paid off real estate's the most efficient way. It could be, but I think some people are shocked when they go and actually put their, their financial life on the model. They're realizing that in some cases, you'd be better off selling that real estate and putting it into another asset. You'd get way better cash flow, way better legacy than the alternative. So just something to think about. Um, <laughs> someone asked me what my most embarrassing moment has been um, in this profession. And I, I, I yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say when I first started at the bank, I would be known, I wouldn't say be known, but I, I, there was a couple times that I forgot to have people sign paperwork and then they went home and I realized, oh no, they, that we forgot to sign a piece of paper and so that we had to like meet again. And like that, that is just so, so embarrassing. Um, I just, I don't, I like to be efficient and, um, you know, that's just not something that I, that I enjoy. So I'll have to think about that. I, I definitely shouldn't get a pass on that. I, I need to do more thinking about what my most embarrassing moment is. But I think for now, it's just, I think it's like when people come in, you tell them, okay, this is all we need to do. You forget a signature and then you either have to go to them or they have to call to you. It doesn't instill a lot of confidence. And so I think that that's up there, but I, I think I'm sure there's, there's something I, I do things embarrassing all the time. So I don't know why I'm blanking. I think it's part of being live and part of reading these questions as they go might be the problem. Next question. Okay. How long do I have to wait to access my money? I'm assuming that this is as it relates to the and asset. It's a good question. It's actually a very common question. Um, how long do I, um, do I have to wait to access my money? And here's, here is the answer. It depends. Depends on the company. And there's something called anti-money laundering, which is essentially like, it is not cool. It is not okay to take money from a life insurance policy and fund another policy and just like launder or, or some people call this ladder policies. It's just not a good, good way to approach this, this business. You get in trouble if you did that. And the insurance companies just want to make sure that you're not laundering or you're using life insurance because of some of the provisions to launder money. So they, th there's definitely a red flag that comes up if you, if you put money in and then borrow against it immediately. We've had clients that have done that and, and, and we're just very clear that, you know, this there, it may take a little bit longer. Um, and here's why. So if someone is funding an and asset and then wants to turn around and needs that money ASAP, I've just found that's probably not the best fit. And you should like, if you need your money urgent, then it just puts everyone at pressure. So the answer to your question is we've had it as soon as a week after. I like to give people a 60 day, like if you need your, if, if you need your money and all of it, 60 days within funding it, let's really understand why. And, and then, and then make sure that this is really set up to make you successful. I understand the opportunity costs. I understand all that, all that good stuff. But that's usually where we get in a problem. If someone wants their money right away, we can 
get it to them. It's just, there's some, there's some flags that usually come up. And so I like to say 60 days, I just like to, um, under promise and over deliver. And I just think it gives exceptions, but technically the moment that you fund, you're freeing up money, but just the, when you're initially, when you're starting a policy, it just, um, it, there, there can just be some more moving pieces now ongoing year two, year three, year four, you make, you make a, um, you, you put money in and it's, and you have access to it ASAP. So it's just very, very powerful there. Okay. Hey, hey, Brennan, how is it? How's it going? Thank you so much for watching. Um, you should ask me a question about anything because this is a live Q&A. So appreciate you being on. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just getting a lot of love in, in the YouTube algorithm. So I appreciate that. Okay. So next question is, what are the fees um, to set up a policy and manage it? That's a that's a really good question. I talk a lot about in my book. Um, minimizing fees and fees can be a huge drag to your money. I, I consider a fee to be anything that is put on your account that puts a drag. Um, and so a lot of times people um, include the life insurance cost, the cost of a permanent death benefit as a, a fee, which is actually not, it's, it's not a fee because a fee is actually just the money going for someone to like manage or for someone to facilitate the growth of your money. Um, this is actually a permanent, your, your, your money is being put aside for a permanent future death benefit. That's, that's not a fee at all. That's actually, a, we, if you think about a, the death benefit as an asset, especially when it comes to legacy planning or estate planning, it's, it's extremely powerful. It's extremely powerful. And so, yes, is there a drag? 100%. I think that's what people are mean, meaning. And it all depends on what, your, what, what kind of policies you have set up. Um, usually in five to six years, it's completely, um, you know, it's, it's completely non-existent, meaning like you're, bre you break even and, and you can look at the, the cash, cash value growth. And, um, and so the, that, that the fee is, is a, is a hard question, but there is no fee that, that we charge to set up a policy, um, that's not in addition to the built-in insurance cost. Um, so Brennan, one of my good friends, is on watching me live. Thank you so much for that. He asked, what is the biggest risk with whole life insurance? Um, and Mariah started. Thank you for that. Um, so the biggest biggest risk of whole life insurance is really not being able to pay the premium. That is, I, this is a mistake that I see as people see it. they Because it really, it's not that you can get a better rate of return and all that stuff because it's an and asset. You can leverage it. You can do all these other things. The biggest risk is if you if you if you have your base premium, base premium is your your committed premium. Um, if that's too high and something happens to you and you you can't pay it anymore, then you put yourself, especially early on in a policy, in a in a position to lose out on some money that you put in. So the way that we approach that is we are very very clear with the the base PUA and all, how we design, and we never want to put our clients in a, in a in a risk to to derail that. The other thing is we want it to design our policies from day one to be able to self-fund itself and to, to be able to fund even if you can't make the premiums. That's how conservative we are um, because that is one of the big risks. The other, the other risk is just the opportunity cost. If you're someone that needs all your money today that you could put it into a machine and you're so confident that it'll kick out extra money, there's a risk of like starting and establishing an and asset. There's a couple of years where you don't have dollar for dollar access. That's not 
that's not necessarily a downside. I think that's actually a, a benefit because of the long-term foundation. And and you and I both know, Brennan, that if, if someone has access to all their money and they're spending all their money and investing all their money, there's some downsides to that as well. But that would be the other way I would answer that question. And so, um, and I don't think, I don't think I ans- answered the fees question very well on the policy. Let me just re-answer that. There's no fees of setting up a policy. The cost of insurance is not considered a fee because it's an uh, it's it's going towards an asset, but it is a drag, and you can see exactly what the drag is if you get an illustration. There's no hidden fees because you can see what exactly is going on. So that might be a more um, better way. There's another question that says also, what is what are the best states to die in? Uh, thoughts thoughts on how to plan for this? Oh man, Brennan, um, asking me great questions. I so so really when we're talking about states to to best die in that i actually don't know that off off the top of my head um the way that i am designing our plans and and really if you're worried about in um estate taxes if you're worried about rules um you you really should have some kind of estate strategy which i have you know trust plans and and foundations so i am never going to pay estate taxes or my my family or wherever my money is never going to pay estate taxes because it's we have proper planning set up. Um, a life insurance comes in income tax free. So across the board, no states would be affected by that um, because it's it pays income tax free now. Um, so so that's that's probably what you're addressing because each each state has a different um, you know income tax. As far as estate planning goes, you should never pay estate taxes if you know what you're talking about. And so the reason I don't know that is if someone is in that scenario, we're working with people that set up an area where they never have to pay estate taxes. Um, so I, I actually, you you are the first person to ask me on a live stream, something that I can't give you a, a direct answer on. So thank you for that. Hopefully you did get my answer and hopefully that was helpful. Um, I do appreciate you keeping me on the to- my toes. All right, so let's see if we can find one more question. Um, Someone someone asked, "Do do you like driving a Tesla?" I do. Um, again, it was uh, speaking of Teslas, Brennan. Um, this is the guy that's ha- sending me messages live. I influenced to get a Tesla, um, which is kind of funny because it's the same kind of deal as he drove. He drove mine and then kind of fell in love with it. So the moral of the story is don't buy, a te- don't drive someone's Tesla if you don't have the money to buy one. Um, but I will I will say this. The last question is, how do you make money? This is a really good question. We're asked this a lot. We have really two different programs here at Better Wealth. Program number one is, you know, people come in, they go through our unlimited package, which is our coaching. And this is where we are just like pouring into you. You have a coach. We're modeling what's going on. We're going through our four principles. And and so I would say we 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 charge for that right now. It's a thousand dollars for people to do that. It's lifetime, by the way. So you get in the first thousand people that get into our program are going to have just going to have the best deal of their life. And we've just decided like we want to create a a, a fan base, a family base of of a thousand people that we can serve extremely well. Um, and so that is one way that we make money. The other way that we make money is anytime there are products that are sold, whether it's investments insurance, disability, annuities, really any anything that's that's a transaction. And I talked earlier in this in this uh, podcast about transaction versus transformation, but it, anytime there's a transaction, 
um, there, there usually is some kind of money that gets, gets paid. Um, but not all of them are fees. Anytime you're dealing with assets under management, you have to look at the fee structure, but usually anytime there's a transaction, there's some kind of, um, whether it's the insurance company or other companies, they're paying us something. And so those are the two ways that we make money. And, um, and so hopefully that, that is super helpful. Um, I just want to give again, my, my friend Brennan, a shout out for being on. Um, and I want to thank, um, Mariah, even though she wasn't able to be here right now, she is um, doing the behind the scenes and helping us with this. I also want to thank everybody that came up with these questions. We, we, I really want to get people live on the show. So if that's someone, if you're someone that wants to come on live with me in front of the better wealth audience would love that. And so please submit your questions either at Caleb at betterwealth.com or I know the screen is saying info at betterwealth.com would, would absolutely love that. Um, so without further ado, thank you. Thank you for subscribing. If you hit that like button, that helps with the algorithm and helps uh, more people find our channel. We're over 600. This is my problem. I start opening up loops. I need to research. How many subscribers do we have? Looks like we have 651 subscribers on YouTube. So I am really, really grateful. We are slowly growing and uh, we're just staying consistent with content. So without, with that, take care and have an intentional rest of your week and weekend. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.